you're going to try to change your thought structures, you're actually working against a very powerful force. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Scott Killaby, a noted author and international speaker on the subject of freedom through non-dual recognition. He is the author of many books and has traveled the world extensively, giving lectures, workshops, and incentives on spiritual awakening in the healing of addiction, anxiety, depression, and trauma. Scott is a California registered addiction specialist, interventionist, and case manager. He's the co-founder for the Killaby Center for Recovery in Palm Springs, California, the first addiction, anxiety, depression, and trauma incentive outpatient program to focus primarily on mindfulness. Scott is also the co-owner of the Natural Rest House, a detox and residential center in La Quinta, California, as well as the COO of My Life Recovery Centers, which offers the naltrexone implant, which is a groundbreaking medication that greatly reduces or eliminates cravings for opiates and alcohol for long periods of time. In this interview, Eric and Scott discuss many topics, including his book, Living Realization, a simple, plain English guide to non-duality. If you're getting value out of this show, please go to oneyoufeed.net slash support and make a donation. This will ensure that all 185 episodes that are in the archive will remain free and that the show is here for other people who need it. Some other ways that you can support us is if you're interested in the book that we're discussing on today's episode, go to oneyoufeed.net and find the episode that we're talking about. There will be links to all of the author's books, and if you buy them through there, it's the same price to you, but we get a small amount. 
Also, you can go to oneyoufeed.net slash book, and I have a reading list there, oneyoufeed.net slash shop, and you can buy t-shirts, mugs, and other things. And finally, oneyoufeed.net slash Facebook, which is where our Facebook group is, and you can interact with other listeners of the show and get support in feeding your good wolf. Thanks again for listening. And here's the interview with Scott Killaby. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Your book is called Living Realization, a simple, plain English guide to non-duality. And so we're going to talk about what non-duality and awakening is, and we'll probably talk about how it also applies to addiction, because that's something else that you spend a lot of time on. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love, and the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops, and he thinks about it for a second, and he looks up at his grandfather, and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. So the work that I'm doing, when you, when you say it's uh, about non-duality or awakening, that's true, and also I have a, a Killaby Center for Recovery, which is a treatment center. And I guess no matter wh where or how I do this work, um, I, I begin to see, or I've really seen <laughs> for, throughout the years, that a lot of times we're, we're feeding our egos. So this is just part of life, but we're feeding that part of us that feels incomplete and deficient, perhaps even scared, traumatized, addicted. So we don't know any better, and we think that by feeding it somehow, maybe we'll find healing or we'll find freedom. But if you really look closely into your life, you don't really find it that way. And what you do is you just find sort of more ego. So um, I don't know if, if my work fits squarely in the context of the parable, because it's really about non-duality, sort of seeing beyond the good and the bad. However, I will say that the more we feed this ego part of ourselves with its trauma and its deficiency stories and its addictions, the more suffering there is. So I would say, don't feed that one. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of what you feed, uh, just don't feed that one. And then my work is about sort of really gently dismantling that false sense of self so that, um, so that it goes from being a hungry, um, wolf, as you will, as you say, to being, no longer the master of your life, the runner of the show, essentially. Yeah, the parable is relatively dual, right? So let's define non-duality for the listeners. When you say non-dual awakening, what are you referring to? Well, it, it is not a greatly, it's not a really precise term, and I don't really use it very often. Um, I do because the audience knows what the word means, but I'll give you as best I can, is that we live in a world of duality, of a uh, sense of separation, a sense of uh, opposites, right, wrong, good, bad, and also just really a feeling of sense of separation. I'm separate from you. You're separate from me. And in that feeling of separation, there is suffering uh, because that's where the ego sort of resides in that sense of separation. So non-duality is about essentially seeing through the ego, seeing that it's an illusory thing. It's not really who we are. And as we see that, the sense of separation, not only within ourselves, but the separation that we see in all of life is seen through so that when you look out at life, you feel a sense of oneness and a sense of non-separation or 
divisionless in life. And in that lies the possibility of really ending suffering. And because you're saying in regards to addiction or really in life in general, as long as we are attached to or believe in this idea of a separate self, and by that we mean I am my own thing that is distinct from everything else, that regardless of the approaches that we take in life, we're going to be kind of the analogy I might use is we're going to be trimming off the leaves of the problem versus kind of going after the, the root of the problem itself. Is that a safe way to say it? That's a very safe way to say it. That's, I've, I've actually said that in one of my books. Um, when you go after the root, you go after the very sense of a separate identity itself. The, the stuff that manifests out of that are all the branches or the leaves, as you say. And if you stay sort of trying to work with the branches or beautify the tree or improve the tree, you're only going to go so, in my view, you're only going to go so, so deep into this real possibility of happiness and freedom and peace because the ego is really a suffering mechanism. And so if I could just say one other thing so that people don't believe what I'm saying, just listen to your mind throughout the course of one day. That's all you have to do is just listen to what it says. I mean, there may be some positive stuff in there. But what the mind tends to do is it tends to run old scripts, blaming, complaining, sort of over-labeling every experience, and a host of other things like addictive, compulsive thinking, deficiency stories like I'm not good enough, she doesn't love me. So that mechanism, obviously, is the creature of suffering in us. So to see through that is to see through that sense of separation, that sense of false self, there is really a very profound piece on the other side of that, that that the ego cannot know. So everything you just said, I think listeners of the show will resonate with and they'll say, yep, you know what? I do recognize that my thought patterns are part of my problem. I do recognize that I'm kind of trapped in this, this brain. But where most people go with this is to the idea of what I need to do is I just need to become healthier in the way my brain works. I need to understand my thought patterns better, all that. But you're going kind of a step beyond that, which is saying this you that you believe in isn't there in the way that you think it is, or that's not all that's there might be a different way of saying that. So you're kind of going a step beyond where even people who have identified like the way I think, my negative thought patterns, my habitual compulsions, all that are a problem. Still, they're mostly going, well, let me work on that versus believing that I'm not here at all. That's a good question. So in an ideal world, we could simply rearrange our thoughts, make them more positive, and, you know, by all means, if someone can do that and truly do that and somehow be truly happy and at peace, be truly happy and at peace, then by all means do that. But having worked with so many people through the years, a lot of people just cannot do that. And I think that the reason for that has to do with there's a basic sense of identity at the seat of our experience, which is what I call the deficiency story. It's a core story of feeling of not being good enough, not being loved, not accepted, imperfect, something like that, unsafe. And because it's it's like the linchpin that holds our personality together. So if you're going to try to change your thought structures, you're actually working against a very powerful force. You're working against a mind that really on some level is designed to suffer. You know, I was never able to do it just from my own experience. I was never able to simply just rearrange my thoughts because this deep core story was really running the show. And that's what I've seen with a lot of people. But, you know, this is not the kind of thing you can make into a religion. 
And you can't say to people, don't try to change your thoughts or don't try to do this or that because everybody will just do what they'll do. But everybody should know that there's this possibility of waking up out of this mind-made sense of self. Like that's what spiritual awakening has been for thousands of years. And people just need to know in case that's the route they want to take. So what we're talking about here is really what the mystics of all the spiritual traditions have talked about, which is that, you know, Buddhists might call it uh, no-self or non-self, but it's this recognition that we are not who we think we are. And what I think is interesting about that is, and you talk a little bit about this, is on one level, it seems incredibly obvious that yes, here I am, right? I am right here. So are, are we saying that I'm not right here? Or what are you saying that I am if I'm not the me that I'm used to thinking of myself in a conventional way as? What am I? Or what are we? If one notices their thoughts throughout the course of the day, it's almost like, even though this is kind of a very rough way of saying it. It's almost like there's a screen in front of you that's producing or that's showing up as words and pictures. So they're images and words. It's like data. It's like a data stream. Mm -hmm. So this data stream, we carry it around with us. We see this data coming across our screen the whole time. But the question is, is that what is aware of that screen? What is aware of those thoughts? So we take ourselves to be that data, those words and pictures coming across the screen. We we often never question whether that's really us. So as we start to question that self, in other words, literally questioning whether these thoughts are actually me in a very skillful way, what you find is that there's something aware of the thoughts. And that something is not itself a thought. It's the awareness that perceives. And so when that's recognized within us, that there's that this awareness or beingness that is not conceptual, that is alive, that is awake and aware of the present moment. When that recognizes itself, that awareness, that's essentially what we mean by spiritual awakening. And so what we're saying is that if you look at your life and you, you sort of start to deconstruct, you know, what am I? If we look at, well, am I my thoughts? Well, I don't think I'm my thoughts because I can notice them and I don't think I'm my body. That the one thing that has always been with us, the one thing that is always there no matter what, as you said, is this sense of, I am, this being aware, this watching, you know, that, that people call different things, but you're saying that's who we really are? Yeah, but it's not conceptual. So it's not like you stumble upon it as like an intellectual insight. This has to be truly experienced. Mm -hmm. Even to say in an intellectual way, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings, doesn't necessarily end the suffering or, or let the suffering die down. What really, really starts to end the suffering is when experientially, in your actual experience, you feel and know yourself as that which is awake and aware to the present moment, rather than yourself as these thoughts come and go. So yeah, you're, what you're saying is exactly right. I just want to say to your audience, it has to be experience, it has to be a direct experience of that for any of this makes sense. Otherwise, this will just simply be purely theoretical or food for thought. Right. And I would imagine a bunch of the listeners of this show have been exposed to this idea plenty of times. And to your point, if it's not experiential, it doesn't really do a whole lot. So your book, Living Realization, you talk about there's a method. You say this is the main invitation in the book. And so I'm just going to read it and then maybe we can talk through those different parts of it because this is you're saying this is sort of a way towards experiencing this versus thinking about it. And you say the main invitation in this method is recognize awareness, let all appearances be as they are, 
and see that appearances are inseparable. So let's talk through those. Let's talk through the first piece of it, which is recognize awareness. What does that mean or how does somebody go about doing that? So there's some simple portals to that, which are like ways into it. And one is to simply in the, in the midst of noticing that you're thinking, just noticing the current thought, literally just turning attention towards it, whether it be in the form of a set of words that you're hearing or a mental image. And the moment you turn towards it, you're actually observing in that moment from awareness. That's where the observing is coming from. Because every thought that you observe just simply fades away while observing it. And as it fades away or a stream of thoughts fade away, then you stop for a moment and you feel into this experience of being the perceiver instead of being the thought. And so that's one way in is just to do that. And you have to kind of just really check it out for yourself. It's like a portal. And the more you do that, the more you sort of waking up out of being the thought into being the awareness. There's several of them, but one is just taking deep breaths in to anchor you to the present moment. And as you're doing that, to really notice the breath coming in and out. And what it does is it just stops the mind for a second. And in stopping the mind, you get a sense of the feeling or the sense of presence that's already here under the thought stream. And another one is just taking short moments. So it's like just for a few seconds, like three, five seconds, just stop thinking and look around at the present moment without any labels. And so these are little portals. It doesn't mean that once you do it one time, that you're going to simply wake up, <laughs> right? Maybe you're lucky. Maybe it'll happen, but that's not the usual path. And it has happened very rarely like that. But mostly what happens is it's just a process of doing it over and over until it's like it's a, it's a regular practice so often that you're just, you're in the process of waking up to awareness and it just sort of begins to dawn on you in a way. So those are portals. There are other ones, but that's the first part. So mindfulness is a term that that is used a lot. We've certainly used it on the show. We've had lots of people on. And so what we're kind of talking about here, though, is so mindfulness at its first level is noticing what's happening, right? I try and move away from the thought pattern to what's my actual experience. What am I seeing? What am I feeling? What's, What's happening? And then this is at least as I'm understanding it, is sort of the next step is to to move away from the contents of awareness, which are those things, objects in awareness, to what is the thing that is noticing those various objects. Does that align with your teaching? It truly is. I mean, some people consider mindfulness and awareness essentially the same thing. Some people do make a distinction, and I don't think the distinction makes a lot of a difference. But the way that you just explained it is is both mindfulness and awareness. So it's becoming aware of a thought in which you're identified with at first. And then by just gently observing it, the thought starts to unhook from awareness a little bit. And then you start to get a sense of being this presence rather than being the thought. Yeah, and the more that you do that in your life, the more that shift, that awakening starts to happen.
The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They can Condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. And here's the rest of the interview with Scott Killaby. The second part of your invitation is to let all appearances be as they are. So let's first talk about what are appearances. What do you mean? So appearances really, one way to say it's anything that appears, but it's really the book focuses on thoughts, which are in the form of words and pictures that appear to awareness in the mind, so to speak, and then feelings and sensations. So here's the thing about we humans is that when we have a thought or a feeling we don't like, on some level, we're almost automatically resisting it, uh, trying to get it to go away, trying to whatever. And in that movement of trying to resist it or distract ourselves from it, we actually strengthen it. Because as they say, you know, whatever you resist persists. So letting everything be as it is, is it's like a restful allowing of whatever you're witnessing. So if you see a thought arising, you simply notice the thought and you allow it exactly as it is as you're noticing it. Or if a feeling comes in the body, you bring attention to that feeling really gently and just allow it to be as it is. But it also includes if the resistance does arise. So if you're having a feeling and you're also like, I don't want to feel this, is becoming aware of that movement of resistance and that even allowing that to be as it is. Really allowing everything to be as it is, whether you like a feeling or you don't like a feeling or it's uncomfortable or comfortable or whether you're resisting it or not is just to allow all those movements. 
And in the larger scheme, it simply means to allow everything to be as it is, which means all of life as appearing right now, including any negative feelings, thoughts, but also colors, shapes, sounds, just letting them, everything come and go freely to awareness. And in that coming and going where everything is just coming and going freely to awareness, there's a kind of a deeper peace and surrender than you know that way that you can't know through the mind, but by through thinking. Right. And even short of having a spiritual awakening, right? We'll, we'll, we'll say this moment of, of this tremendous waking up. My experience has been that every time I can stop resisting what's happening, my life is better, right? But that my, yeah. I think it's, we had Shinzen Young on the show, and I think he's got a, an equation that says something like um, suffering equals pain times resistance, right? So whatever things are happening in my life, you know, I've got this natural pain, you know, my finger hurts, right? Multiply that by resistance, and that's how much I'm suffering. And I just yeah. find that to be, to be so true. And I think this ties to addiction, because you've mentioned you have a treatment center, and addiction is kind of, at least for me, it was the ultimate ultimate in not letting things be. It was yeah. like, I so strongly can't bear whatever this experience is that I'm willing to pretty much destroy my life to make it go away. You know, it's like the extreme version. Yes, it is. It really is the extreme version. It certainly applies to everybody. This practice can help everybody. But those with addiction, I mean, I've lived a life of addiction too, is like, usually when I'm using something, it's like you say, it's like, I don't want to feel something. It could be an old trauma coming up. It could be an emotional wound. It could be just, I'm, I'm just pissed off at somebody or something, or I'm bored. So that, yes, you're, you said it so well. Addiction is just the absolute resistance to what I'm actually feeling and thinking in a given moment. So if someone who's suffering from addiction takes up this practice of allowing things to be, and then when they resist to allow the resistance, you can see naturally how that's going to have an impact, a great impact on the addiction, but just, but it, it takes time because our systems are hardwired to want to resist. And so you have to, it's almost like learning to relate or becoming, it's not really learning in the way the mind learns, but through experience, you come to relate differently to the arisings in your life, the thoughts, emotions, and sensations. Yeah. So the first two steps so far are pretty straightforward, right? Recognize awareness and then let everything be as it is. I think that even intellectually, you can look at that and practice that and life gets better. It's really this last step to me that is what goes into the non-dual or into the spiritual awakening. It's really the step for me that's beyond conception in a way. And it's that, see that all appearances are inseparable. So this is the experience of the oneness or the unity. So the first two you can do and still be very clearly feel like a separate being. So what is this last step that appearances are inseparable? Because is that where the sense of myself as I understand myself to be falls away? Yeah, certainly the main sense of a separate object is the self. So as you inquire into the self and you start to see that it's not what you thought it was, it's merely a collection of ideas, words, pictures, then it starts to be seen through and you're actually looking from awareness. And then you can see the sense of the separate self is just not there. And that, that's after a deep practice of this. But then, so the other thing is, though, is to see the inseparability everywhere. So even when you're looking at a thought, from awareness, the thought starts to seem inseparable from the awareness. The awareness. There's no dividing line between the awareness and the thought that appears. It's this sort of just. It's like the thought is immediately appearing seamlessly to awareness, 
or the sound of my voice right now, if you listen from awareness, not from thinking, it's appearing immediately to your awareness. It's like there's not separation between the sound of my voice and the hearing of the voice. It's so just immediately there. And everything is like that. Colors, and the more that you rest as awareness and look, it's like the whole moment is appearing inseparably to that which is which is perceiving it right now. It's so immediate. And then I would just say to go deeper is that when you go deeper into this experience of awakening, the conceptual structure of life itself in your mind begins to quiet and you start to see life in the moment as sort of just a seamless reality because it's the thoughts that divide things up. So if I say, you know, that's a cup, this is a cabinet, that's a toothbrush. In the very using of the thought to label something, I labeled it in a way that makes it feel separate from everything around it and from me. But as the mind starts to quiet, as you recognize this awareness and the conceptual structure is just sort of broken down and quieter, then you look around and there's a sense that it's all almost like it's all just one thing appearing in different expressions, you know, and, and this, there's a seamlessness to life. Like there's just like you can't, it's actually a felt thing. You can't feel life as being separate anymore once the mind kind of quiets. And this is the experiential part that has to be experienced for it to have any real meaning. And, and that experience happens, my understanding, is not something you can make happen, right? But but the path, such as there is one, is through this resting in awareness and then just letting things be as they are. And you know, listeners of the show might be like, well, all of a sudden we've had like three guests that were talking about this. Like, why, <laughs> why is Eric putting me through all this? And, and the reason is, and I haven't really shared it till now. And I went on a seven day retreat with, uh, another teacher, uh, who was a guest on the show, Adi Ashanti. And I, I had one of these experiences. It lasted about five hours or so, but it was, you know, there aren't really words for it. It was that kind of what you said that like, it was very clear in those moments that everything was one thing, that things weren't inseparable. It wasn't that like things looked differently. It was just a deep knowing. And so that's kind of why I am, you know, spending a little bit more time on this topic in our episodes and, and guests recently, because it's just something I'm very, after having that experience, I am even more interested than I may have previously been in it because now I'm like, oh, okay, well, that is real. Like, that's, that actually can happen. And, you know, I'm, I'm having to watch for all the seeking, the recurrence of that experience and, you know, the chasing of it and, and all of that. But it certainly opened my eyes to like, oh, I have now an experience that what is everything that these people are talking about actually is, at least in my case, was true. Yeah. And not only is it a true realization that can happen, but once you have had a taste of that, you can't not be drawn to it because it's so powerfully different. I don't know the words, but it's so very different than the ego state. Um, even though you're right, things look the same. And since, you know, there's a brown and there's a blue and all that, but it's experientially very different way of relating to life, you know, and we're, we're talking about the end of suffering, you know? And so when you were in that state for five hours, I'm assuming there wasn't a lot of suffering. No, I mean, my overwhelming reaction was, thank God that's over. Like, it was just this, the deepest relief of like, it goes beyond words, but that was one of them was just this deep relief that like, okay, like that 
is over. That idea of Eric as I thought he was, or this thing that I need to prop up. And, and yeah, I mean, and so it, it continues to some degree afterwards, but it's much more now back into being a knowledge, a thought-based thing than experiential at the current time. Right. So you had a, you kind of have what they sometimes call a glimpse or a peak experience, but it changes you forever because it's not like you can forget that and just say, well, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to look into that anymore because that, and that's the really the beautiful thing about it is once we taste or, you know, dip into it, it's like there's a natural pull or impulse to kind of awaken into it because, you know, cause you really start to see just how much suffering is in the ego state after that. Um, if you hadn't seen it before, and so that's a great thing. It'll, it'll keep pulling you into that. And if you have the right skillfulness, you know, you, you will eventually abide in that. Yep. I'm optimistic, you know, I mean, but again, I'm watching for, because at the core of this, and you stress this in the book over and over, right, is that this isn't about having a particular experience, that this is about letting everything be as it is. And so yeah. there's that like paradox of like, okay, well, I want more of that, but the seeking stands right directly in the way of the realization, at least it seems to me. Yeah. You could say seeking is resistance because right. what it's saying, seeking forward movement instead of a relaxing and allowing of what's happening here now. It's a natural impulse to see, but there's there's resistance built into it. So part of the skillfulness, I think, for people is recognizing that the seeking energy is there and then resting as that awareness and starting to just allow all the seeking energy to just sort of wind itself down. Because what you found, I think, in that moment is you found presence you found this 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 life here now and the seeking energy is telling a lie it's saying you're going to find this in the future right you keep <laughs> that's the lie it's here but you have to be skillful with it yeah and this question has been we've had guests on the show we've talked about this for a long time we had a guest on who studies chinese religions and you know the title of the book is trying not to try right and we've had you know zen teachers on who are talking about the same thing like well if everything's perfect the way it is why do i need to meditate and that's you know the other question that's at the heart of this show for me has always been like feels inborn to me this desire to move forward this growth this you know ambition's the wrong word but it can be considered you know ambition is maybe a perverse form of it but that's there so how do you have that and at the exact same moment, let it, you know, be perfectly content and grateful with, with where you are. And I think it's just one of those paradoxes that we try and find our way through. Yeah. And I think that the first part of the path is to, is to sort of see through the ego, because the ego is the thing that's pushing hard towards the future. But as you sort of see through it, and then, you know, you continue to allow its seeking to quiet down. There's also this other thing which takes over, which is that life has movement. But if the ego is no longer, if you're no longer living in that ego state, the movement is a different movement. It's a flow. And there can still be creating and running a business or doing a podcast or being an artist and even excelling in those things. So there is this becoming aspect to awakening even after you awaken. It's not just simply that we necessarily sit on a park bench or on a meditation mat and just, I mean, we can for a while, but. But there's a movement. But I think in, but before that is recognized, before that present awareness is really recognized and there's a stability in it, then the ego is running the show. And the ego is all about becoming and movement towards future. And that's, that's why the awakening eludes the ego, because its main goal is to do that. 
I love Perfect Bars. I've talked about them before on here, how much I love them, how many of them I've eaten, which is an extraordinary number. But there's not just Perfect Bars. The company, Perfect Snacks, make a variety of products like protein bars, peanut butter cups, and kids' snack bars. And they're all made with freshly ground nut butter, organic honey, and 20 organic superfoods. You're sure to find something that you'll love. Of course, my favorite is the standard Perfect Bar dark chocolate chip peanut butter, although their peanut butter cups are amazing too, and you keep them in the fridge and so they're cold. If you're not already convinced, they're also non-GMO, project verified, they're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're kosher, and they're low GI, and they are delicious. So right now, Perfect Snacks is offering 15% off your online order. Just go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perfectsnacks.com slash wolf today to get 15% off your order. We want you to be prepared for snack time. So go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf to stock up and save 15%. Let's talk about the sense of I am, right? Because at least for me, for a long time, I mean, I've studied Buddhism for a long time, and I'll I'll tell you that, that this idea of non-self or no-self was the part for me that I was least interested in for a long time, because I'd read all the other stuff and go, oh, that all makes sense, like resistance and, you know, okay, not being so attached to my thoughts and clinging, and that all made sense. But I looked at this other part, and I went, that makes no sense, because... I have such a clear experience of here I am. Yeah. And I think that that's not, at least for me, what, I, what I've what i been learning is that that sense of here I am is absolutely real. Um, I, that, I'm not trying to make that go away. Is that your understanding? Is that yeah. not trying to say like, oh, I'm not here or nothing is here. There is something that is here. It's just that that something isn't what we think it is. Yeah, I think you don't want to go around saying I don't exist or there's nothing here, <laughs> um, especially if it's just an intellectual insight because it's not going to take you very deep. But this is why I dismantled this whole stuff in the Living Realization book. I tried to break it down just to figure out what this, you know, to show people what I mean by identity. You got to first see that, yeah, there's a sense of I am here. You get that sense of here. That can actually be a portal to the awakening. But what happens on top of that as a layer, again, is this time-bound, thought-based self. So it's all the, we're identified with thoughts of past and future, and they're actually appearing right before you, and you can see it. So that the awareness is sort of fixated on those thoughts for a sense of self. So that's what the ego is, um, largely. I mean, it's emotion and sensation, too, that we're identified with. But it's simply seeing that, okay, yeah, those thoughts are appearing, but they're not who I am. What I am is what's looking at them. And there's still the sense of I am in that awareness. There's a sense of I am, but it's not I am this thought or I am that story or I am, you know, and that's where the conceptual part is where we really get hooked up in the ego part. So a question for you, because this is something that I read and I still have, like, there's this part of me that's like, I don't understand. And I think I read it in your book somewhere that this idea that this awareness, so, okay, here I am, I'm aware, right? There's this awareness, but that it's not located anywhere. And it still seems to me, though, that there is a location in some way, because I'm able to feel a pain inside my body that, that you're not able to experience. Or, yeah. um, you know, you are able to look out your window and see something with your awareness that I am not seeing. So is this something that can even be put into words that you can explain? 
it's really not. It's more like a felt sense. But one way I talk about the non-locatable awareness is that often people, when they're first doing this practice, I'll say to them, can you imagine that awareness is located from behind you, like the back of your head or your body, and then it's emanating forward or radiating forward? So that's a good starting thing because then it's like, okay, yeah, there's a location for it. It's, it's in the back of my body and mind. And that can help them to then witness the thoughts and the feelings and see them coming and going and seeing that, okay, it's a temporary thought. I'm not a temporary thought. I'm not this temporary thought, all that. But then I have them go deeper and say, now go back to that sense of that where you located awareness behind you and see if you can actually see the, the source of awareness. Where does it begin? And as they go deeper into that, they recognize, well, every time I think I've found the source of awareness, like its location or something, what I actually have is another arising. I'm, I'm experiencing a sensation, and that sensation is in awareness. Or I'm having an idea that I'm the witness, and that idea is actually happening to awareness. It's not the source of awareness. So it's like trying to find the source of awareness. You can't find it. And then there's a sense then, as you can't find it, that there's this ever-expanding sense of almost like boundaryless sense of, of, of an awakening where it's like you can't, there's no way your mind can even, I mean, you, your mind can try to think about it, but in your direct experience, you can't find a location or a beginning or an end to it. And I think that's more of just like a felt sense. I think I could, yeah, the whole thing about what's in my awareness being different than your awareness, I think this just confuses people. So I tend to stay away from it. I just, <laughs> you know, I talk about it the way I just said. Yep. And so a lot of non-dual teachers, yourself included, Adi Ashanti, lots of other folks, is this part of the path is this idea of inquiry or self-inquiry. Um, talk to me a little bit about what that looks like in the work that you do. There's lots of different forms of self-inquiry. The inquiries that we have are called the living inquiries. And the main one of that is called the unfindable inquiry. And it came from my time with a great good teacher of mine who sort of taught me the unfindability of what's called the Madhyamaka Buddhist, one of the Madhyamaka Buddhist school. So what I did is I translated that form of inquiry into sort of plain English, and it's actually in part of this book that you mentioned. But let me just give you a real quick explanation of it. So what you have to do first is you have to find a target. You have to find something that you're looking for, and usually people start with the self. But I tell them to name that self. So they might say, well, I'm the one who's not good enough, or I'm the victim, or... I'm the failing artist. So then I say, okay, that's your target. So if that's really who you are, you ought to be able to find that self, something where you, you actually land on something, you go, yes, that's it. So then I take them through a process of actually looking for it. So let's say an image comes up, they're looking for the failed artist, and an image comes up of a painting that got rejected by, a, by someone. Um, I say, look at the painting in your mind's eye. It's a picture of the painting. And I'll say, is that you, the failed artist? And, I'll, and the way I say it is, don't intellectualize this. If you feel anything in your body, just say yes. Because it's the feeling or the sensations that are stuck to these thoughts that make the thoughts feel true. And I can say more about that later. So I have them answer from the body. So I say, okay, you gave me a yes. Just let that picture of the painting be there a second. Just keep observing it, observing it from awareness. And then what happens is the picture starts to fade. And as it does, I have them come down and feel just that sensation or emotion that was there previously connected to that thought. And as they rest with it, I say, okay, 
is this feeling from awareness, is this feeling by itself the failed artist? And then sometimes they'll say no, because it's just a feeling. It's not a failed artist. It's a feeling. Um, but sometimes they'll say yes. And when they say yes, what they're really saying is, um, as me, if to me, a facilitator is there's still some thoughts connected to that feeling. So let's say I'll ask a question that gets them to find out what thoughts connected to it. So let's say, okay, in 12th grade, I got ridiculed by the art teacher. Okay, put up that image. And now let's just look at that. Is that image by itself you, the actual failed artist? And again, if they feel something with it, it's a yes. And if they don't, it's a no. And as you keep going through these various things that you think are you, you find out that none of them by themselves are you and that you can't find the failed artist. It's just not there, not in the way that you thought. And in that, there's a release from suffering because the suffering came from the belief, I'm a failed artist. And so inquiry in this case is just a very direct inquiry into what my experience is, and it's done in a pretty structured way. You know, I've heard of self-inquiry for years and had no idea what that even really meant until I, you know, started digging a little bit further into it and went, oh, okay, it's a very structured inquiry. It's a very formal process of like, okay, do this and then this and then, and again, trying to be at the level underneath our basic conceptual thought. Right. It's, it's, it takes skill and practice. That's right. And, and every inquiry is different. The inquiry that I just did is different than a self-inquiry that you might see in a different tradition. This right. is a particular one in, in our work, yeah. Excellent. Well, Scott, I could probably talk about this for the next two hours, but we are uh, near the end of the wrapping up. So I want to talk about one last thing, and then we will wrap it up, which is that you talk about that even post-awakening, that people can still have blockages of different sorts or other things to work through. So what's the relationship of, okay, I've seen through that this ego and self isn't what I think it is, right? I'm not separate from everything around me. And yet there's still this deeper level or another level of maybe suffering is the wrong word, but of, of some sort of blockage or still clinging to things. Help me understand what that looks like and, and how you move through that piece. So when you're first having an awakening, you can only awake out of what's really conscious in your experience. There's some stuff that's sort of unconscious. And to demystify that word, I simply mean it's just something that you don't see. That's part of your identity, but you can't see it. So one really good example is like trauma. If you experienced emotional, psychological trauma as a child, um, you may have buried that and repressed that feeling or that story or those images somewhere in the cells of your body, almost it feels like, or in the, some deeply buried emotion. So when you awaken, you have a sense that, okay, I've seen through this ego, but yet you, you find yourself like in fight, flight, freeze mode under certain situations, and it's a largely somatic experience. And you have to sometimes then go down into the body and go deeper into the unconscious to really free yourself from that blockage. And that's just one example. But it's like what I found is that even with an awakening experience, some things are just very persistent. And one thing is obviously, like I said, trauma, it's pretty persistent. Shame and addiction can also be pretty persistent if they're not worked with individually. And another one is just what I call the core story. So believe it or not, even once you have an awakening experience out of the general sense of a self, there's a core strand of the ego, which I call the deficiency story, which will come up and rear its head until it's fully resolved. And that's like that deep feeling of being unlovable. 
are not good enough or something everybody has. That's a very persistent aspect of ego. So some people have had an awakening where that just is obliterated completely. But over the years, I found that majority of people still have to look at this core story a little bit longer after that initial awakening experience to truly free them. Free them. And I don't know why that is, except that it just awakening doesn't necessarily eradicate all of the stars, help you see through all of it. Something about it just doesn't go that deep every time. Got it. So there's different levels then potentially or continuing unfolding. Yeah, there's a continuing unfolding. The good news is that there's no end to the depth, the depth of freedom. But after you've awakened initially and the seeking energy is gone, this is the key. Because there's a lot of people that will hear this and they'll start to seek it. Like, I want enlightenment now, right? Um, so you got to kind of deal with the seeking energy and have that sort of initial awakening into awareness. And once you do and you abide in that, the seeking is going to die. And then, but from that awareness, then you can really take a look at these deeper strands as they show up. At that point, it doesn't feel like you're really going anywhere. It doesn't feel like you have to get to a place, but you're still able to investigate or explore these things. Um, and that, that's a subtle nuance I just want to throw out there because some people will say, well, I have to be looking at this stuff for the rest of my life. But see, <laughs> once you awaken to awareness, that doesn't matter. Continuing to look at things doesn't matter anymore because you're not seeking anything. You're here in the moment awake and aware. You're just sort of exploring things that you couldn't see in your consciousness before. Now they're showing up and you can see them. Got it. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. As I mentioned, the book that we mostly talked about was Living Realization. Uh, you've got several others, Natural Rest for Addiction, and um, we'll have links to your website and your homepage and all that stuff in the show notes. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Yeah, my pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneyoufeed.net slash support.